This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This is hit well in a center field. That one's carrying out at center. It's out of here! Oh, Johnny with a pinch hit home run. At the plate is Mike Trout. The pitch on its way. It's blasted out to dead center field. Out of here. Ball gets away. He's going to break for the plate. Ball game is over. The Angels with a walk-off win here in the bottom of the ninth inning. This is the Angels Recap Podcast, a review of the past week in Angels baseball. Here's your host, Trent Rush. Welcome to the Angels Recap Podcast Hot Stove Edition. Yes, spending our off-seasons together exactly how I want to spend my off-season with all of you talking Angels baseball, getting a chance to interact with so many smart baseball people. And what great guests we have here on our podcast today. Chris Epting, author, historian, friend of the show. He's been in several times. He came by the studio. It was so good to chat with him. And we got into some really uh, fun stuff, talking about the old PCL days and the Angels' place in Southern California and what they mean to this Los Angeles area uh, as an organization that has really deep roots in Southern California, roots that, honestly, I wasn't that aware of. So, um, we get Chris here to talk about that. I'm really looking forward to sharing that conversation with you as well. Plus, Jay Paris uh, is another uh, author of baseball. He, he, he's a writer for a long time. He came by our set set up at Kelsey's at Pachanga Resort and Casino. And Jay Paris was so great to have out there. He wrote, he's got a new book all about Shohei Otani, his 2018 season, his American League Rookie of the Year winning 2018 season. Uh, Shohei, no doubt out deserved and it was really cool to have Jay Paris uh, come by our set at Kelsey's to talk about that so we got those two conversations for you here on this podcast I tell you what as a kid I hated summer reading like when you got your remember that when you got your reading list at the end of the school year for get ready for next year and you're like oh god I got this long list of stuff that I got to read and homework in the summer who gives homework over the summertime well now doing what we do here and getting to spend our summers together being around a, a baseball diamond all the time I actually look forward to off-season reading and my winter reading list and I think that when you bring in people like uh, Chris Epting and Jay Paris who, who are so knowledgeable and they're just really fun interactive guys that 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 right in a way that's just fun to learn about and you get to hear so many great stories and they talk to so many of the names that you know that are brilliant baseball minds and they have those stories and they have that insight that they share not only in their work but also uh, coming on the show with us today so without further ado how about our chat with baseball author historian and friend chris Epting? We got Chris Epting in studio right now, baseball author, historian, has written many books. I got Roadside Baseball in front of me right now. He's got another edition of that coming out soon. And Chris, a big uh, Angels fan, Huntington Beach native, and a friend of the show here. What's going on, Chris? Welcome. I'm I'm doing great, Trent. Good to see you again. Yes. And, uh, 
you know, good to be back in this kind of postseason lull that we all, I think all of us baseball fans, with that last pitch, you know, we enter that kind of realm of, okay, let's, the countdown. When do we get back? Um, you know, I, me, I dust off the O2 DVD. <laughs> Seriously, I go back to sort of like my, my blank, my security blankets of baseball to get me over that hump until spring training. I love that, Chris. Yeah, we got that DVD like on every channel here on our TVs here at the office. In fact, for me, I like finding different books to read. Like I'm reading some about the Angels history right now, just trying to learn new things about this organization, about this great game. I encourage people to check out your book, Baseball in Orange County. That's what I really enjoy. For me, this is kind of the beauty of what the offseason can be. It's telling those stories that maybe you don't have time to tell during the regular season. There's so much going on every single day. In the offseason, you can kind of get into some of the history and, and some of the other things about the greatest game in the world that might get missed or could slip through the cracks during the regular season. That's what I love about this game, and an opportunity to do that, I think, Chris, is, is with your Roadside Baseball book, because for one, uh, there's a lot of really interesting places, and something that has kind of been brought to my attention that I'm starting to pick up here is everyone says, wait a minute, Southern California is you know, nationally all about the Dodgers, right? Yeah. The Angels' <laughs> footprint in Southern California, Los Angeles specifically, is incredible. I didn't even know a lot of things about the Angels pre-Gene Autry really taking the team and bringing them to Major League Baseball. Oh, my goodness. We're talking 1892. I mean, unofficially. Uh, Benjamin Harrison is president at that time, and there's this uh, little four-team, I think they were called the California League in, in the Los Angeles area, and the, they weren't called the Angels yet. They were called the Los Angeles Seraphs. Now, a seraph is another word for an angelic being, and in a couple of seasons, that will morph into the Angels. It's an easier-to-digest nickname for a team. But the Angels go back to 1892, essentially, and what I find really amazing, a year later, in 1893, they played their games at a little ballpark. It was just called Athletic Park in downtown L.A. Of course, no longer there. And 1893, the Angels play the very first night game on the West Coast against a team from Stockton. I mean, the very first night, ball, night baseball game ever had been about uh, 15 years earlier back on the East Coast, but they literally set up lights at this game, played a 9 o'clock game at night on a summer night, and the Angels played a night game. So the history starts all the way back pre-1900 with the Angels doing things and sort of breaking ground in Southern California. Yeah, and it's been really fun kind of to keep track of everything. I mean, gosh, I, I was just – I love ballparks, and I know that you do too. You're a big-time ballparks guy. I want to see your, your collection of seats, by the way. Maybe we can post some of them from the old Wrigley Field Absolutely. on Twitter. We can do something like that because uh, as somebody that loves ballparks, the Angels have kind of a, a unique ballpark history before the Big A. Absolutely. Okay, so they leave Athletic Park, and then they played a little place – another place in downtown L.A., um, called Washington Park, which was actually kind of ahead of its time. It was a combination amusement park and baseball stadium. So it really combined this idea of family fun and a lot of kinds of entertainment at one space. And so they play there through the, you know, 1910, 1915. Well, then William Wrigley purchases the team in the early 1920s, and he wants the city to provide underground parking at Washington Park. City says, no dice. He says, no problem. I'll build my own ballpark. 
And he goes to Chicago, where he's based, and he brings out an, a very well-known architect who was known as the uh, the Frank Lloyd Wright of baseball. This is the gentleman who had built um, uh, Wrigley, well, the original Wrigley Field in Chicago, Comiskey Park. And he comes out and he builds what's called the Million Dollar Baseball Palace, which is the Wrigley Field in downtown L.A. And it's interesting, that was called Wrigley before the one in Chicago. The one in Chicago took a number of years. It was called Wiegman Park and Cubs Park. We had the Angels played in the very first Wrigley Field. That is astounding to me because you, you, you of course we know the famous one in chicago and you know i, I go to catalina i know that wrigley field there yeah. and then the one now in los angeles i had no clue that was the original wrigley field there was ivy on the walls at the la wrigley before the one in chicago it really was the template beautiful beautiful stadium i'm sure some listeners have the opportunity to go there uh, because what we're talking about now is the Angels are part of the much-beloved Pacific Coast League at that time. And the PCL was this really incredible professional West Coast baseball league that gave West Coast fans essentially pro baseball before expansion. You had a team, the San Francisco Seals, that the DiMaggio's came up through. Portland had a team. Seattle had a team. And, of course, Los Angeles had a team. There was a team called the Hollywood Stars as well that shared Wrigley Field with the Angels back then. But the Angels, you know, what's interesting is they were, you know, if you look at that league, the half century, that league was essentially together. The Angels, they won the championship 12 times. They were like the Yankees of that league. I think only San Francisco Seals had won a couple more championships. So they were very dominant out here and really made a name for themselves as a local baseball club. By the way, I'm sure you have seen this. There is a 1946 promotional video for the Pacific Coast League. It's a 30-minute special. It lives on YouTube. It is incredible. I was watching that last week, knowing that you were going to come in and talk about this. I know a lot of it is. Yeah, Yeah, and it it blew me away because you had an opportunity to see a lot of the names that you hear and and the Casey Stangles and and all that is when he was managing and seeing what baseball was like and saying, hey, wait a minute. I know everyone wants to talk about what's happening on the East Coast. There's a pretty darn good product out here on the West Coast. There was a great product that was very fan-friendly, wonderful ballparks. You had ultimately Gilmore Field was over in kind of where uh, the farmer's market is in Los Angeles. But, uh, but you know, the Angels, it's funny. Even way back when, you had legendary names associated with the team. If you know, if you had a name the most famous double play combination in history. Most baseball fans would say Tinker to Evers to Chance, right, of Chicago Cubs fame. Frank Chance managed the Angels in the 1920s. I mean, so there you've got sort of a great legendary name connected with the Angels then. Uh, but then when Wrigley takes over, he really builds them into something special. When the Cubs come out, as you mentioned, and train on Catalina every year, because Wrigley, of course, owned Catalina Island as well, they would swing back and always play a series against the Angels at Wrigley Field in L.A. So there was a lot of baseball going on there all through um, the mid-century. There was another guy named uh, Jigger Stats early on in the 1930s, one of the few guys to hit, get 4,000 hits, combined minor and, and major leagues. He was an Angel. And so if you look back at Angels history, they were, again, a very dominant force and really um, really set the tone for quality baseball in Southern California. I'm just looking now at some of the, your notes about Gilmore Field, too, because to me, that, that's like the ultimate Hollywood spot. By the way, we're talking with Chris Epting right now, a baseball writer, historian, and a big Angels fan as well. We're glad to have him here. Uh, but just the, the Hollywood connection with the Hollywood stars and Bing Crosby, Cecil D. DeMille, oh, uh, Barbara Stanwyck, the, the who's who, and the fact that it's on the CBS. 
CBS lot today. I know the ballpark doesn't exist anymore, but the fact like that was the spot. I just think that it, it is so cool seeing the baseball Hollywood connection. I think it's a big thing a lot of people miss. It was a huge deal, and what's interesting is you all, for a short time there you had a football stadium there as well, where the Chargers first played, and I believe the Rams played there as well. But to Gilmore Field, one great bit of trivia: the Hollywood stars were owned by a guy named Robert Cobb, and Robert Cobb also owned a restaurant called the Brown Derby, very famous restaurant in the shape of a giant hat. One night, Robert Cobb goes back in the kitchen. He's hungry. It's late. It's after closing and all that. And he has the guys just kind of whip him up whatever's lying around and do a big salad bowl. He loves all of it. It's kind of a garbage salad, he first called it. Well, he loved it. That's how the Cobb salad was born. And so the owner of the Hollywood Stars is who gave birth to the Cobb salad. So next time you have a a Cobb salad, there's a baseball connection to that as well. That's beautiful. Speaking of the name Cobb, I I think that it's interesting to point out what happened at Wrigley Field because there was a baseball player that maybe you guys have heard of, Ty Cobb, that was in the house, Wrigley Field, for the Angels' first game ever. Is that that right? It's absolutely true. When the Angels became a Major League franchise, you probably know 1960, they're going to expand from eight teams to ten teams, and we're going to get Washington Senators and the Los Angeles Angels. On opening day, 1961, in April of that year at Wrigley Field, Ty Cobb was there to be part of the opening day festivities. Ford Frick was there. Casey Stengel was there. But think about going to an Angel game and seeing Ty Cobb on the field before the game. I mean, again, when you, when you layer in these legendary names, Kennesaw Mountain Landis, you know, inaugurated the park in 1925. These legends, these Mount Rushmore baseball faces were part of the Angels' experience, including Ty Cobb. So we now have a Ty Cobb to the Angels connection, which I never thought in a million years would exist. Hats off to you. I, well, you this piece of paper you gave me, which yes. I know you're going to cover, is absolutely amazing. No, this is actually this comes from the Angels media relations department. Matt Birch, I, I called up Birchy. I said, "Hey, look, <laughs> we got to talk about Cobb and Trout and the comparison here." And he came up with these incredible he it, numbers. He hit it out of the park. He, this about, is incredible. Okay, last two players to bat 315, walk 115 times, score 120 runs, and steal 30 bags. Mike Trout in 2016, Ty Cobb in 1915. Since 1917, there have been five American League center fielders to have a 950 OPS with 30 bags. Trout did it three times, Cobb twice. That's it. Four players in American League history, OPS higher than 1080 with 20 bags in a season. Trout, Sisler, Cobb, Nap Lajoie. Did I get that right? Napoleon Lajoie. <laughs> I didn't know that. But again, Lajou- see, Lajoie. But seeing Trout in this company, Sisler, Cobb, Lajoie, this is the best of the best. The, you know, these are the first-tier Hall of Famers. This is just remarkable. Highest career war through age 26 season. This is a good one. Number five, Alex Rodriguez. Number four, Rogers Hornsby. Number three, Mickey Mantle. Two is Ty Cobb. Mike Trout, number one. Over Ty Cobb through their age 26 season. Trout just finished his age 26 season. Most runs scored through their age 26 season. Mantle is one, A-Rod two, Jimmy Fox three, <laughs> Cobb is four, Mike Trout's five. And then to have the guys through their age 30 seasons with a 10 or more wins above replacement season. Guys that have done that. Roger Hornsby, Rogers Hornsby did it four times. So did Babe Ruth. So uh, Ty Cobb did it three times, along with Mickey Mantle, Ted Williams, and Michael Nelson Trout. 
It's it's the elite of the elite. Thank you, by the way, to your team for getting this together. This really does. This does reveal. Well, look, it's one thing to go to the park and know how special Mike Trout is, but when you do sort of the math on it like this and break it down, all of a sudden he he already lives in the most elite baseball company that exists. It's really impressive. I mean, people talk all the time about seeing the opportunity to see Mike Trout, and we keep saying best player in the game, and we see once again that he is another MVP finalist. Uh, He's been in the top four every year that he's been in. If he didn't get hurt last year, he would have been uh, a top three again. It is amazing to me the fact that we have a living legend out here in center field every day. I mean, those numbers right there. I, I, I asked Birch to try to pull something together comparing Ty Cobb and Mike Trout, which is kind of a crazy thing to think about in itself. But then you, you stack him up with other names. There's not really anybody else that can join the company of Cobb crazy. and Trout. I, I wonder, too, when you begin this kind of fun process of connecting the dots, was there somebody that day at Wrigley Field you know, with his kids saying, you know, I saw Ty Cobb play 40 years ago. You're lucky to see him alive. You know, this idea when a legend enters the park, you really do have to appreciate it. And you have to stop for a moment and take it in, you know, and really recognize what you're seeing. And I think that's uh, what makes baseball so great is this generational connection of these guys. What you produced here on this paper takes us back to Wrigley Field in April of 1961. No doubt. And you talk about it. I mean, you bring your son, Charlie, to the ballpark all the time. And you guys are here and enjoy those World Series games together in 2002. And gosh, I mean, even seeing the World Series again this last year, the connection of family and the generational and filling those gaps. And, and that's, to me... I think one why I like having you in here, Chris, to talk about the history of Angels, not just Angels baseball, of baseball in general, uh, to learn about the history and to understand that because that it, it, the connection is greater than the game itself. I mean, this is families. This is this is American society linked through a sport. It totally is. And again, I think the big thing with the Angels, though, is to really expand people's awareness and let them know that it didn't yet yeah, started here in 19- But this legacy goes way back. I mean, especially in that ballpark for those 50-some-odd years in L.A., they created a lot of great history that really created the demand for Gene Autry to want the team to bring it here. It's all inseparable, you know. And for anybody who's ever watched, again, I'm a Wrigley Field. I never got to go there. I do have a chair from there. I think it looked like one of the most beautiful parks. But, you know, Wrigley Field is special. There are two other really special things about it. The number of films that were shot there, Pride of the Yankees, The Geisha Boy, um, the original Angels in the Outfield was shot there in Forbes Field. That was kind of the official movie set for Los Angeles. But there was a TV show called Home Run Derby. It was on for one season in 1960. And if you've never seen it, there are some episodes on YouTube. It is, it's a remarkable show in how simple it is. It's literally just two of the greatest hitters of the day going head to head in a quiet, a whisper silent ballpark, almost zen-like, where all you hear is little bits of conversation and the sound of bat on ball. It's remarkable. And it was shot there in the, in December of 1959, all 26 episodes. We're talking Mickey Mantle going against Harmon Killebrew, against Duke Snyder, against Willie Mays, against Hank Aaron, the greats of the moment, all shot in, in, in pristine black and white, and Wrigley Field is almost a character in the story. It's a remarkable TV show. It was only in one season. The host, Mark Scott, died, had a heart attack, 47 years old, after the first season, and they retired the show after that. But it does live on, and it is connected to Angel history because of where they shot it. I think that that is fascinating to me. I, and the connections here... 
again, like we talked about at the top, I mean, Chris, everyone wants to talk about uh, the Dodgers this, the Dodgers that in Southern California. I mean, the fact that the Angels have had their footprint here for so long and have built this base for such a long time. I know the Dodgers have the Brooklyn history, but the the Southern California history for the Angels is incredible to me. And, And I think there's so many interesting characters. I think we're really just scratching the surface when we talk about the Major League Club. I mean, you've got Steve Bilko in the late 50s who won the Triple Crown for the Los Angeles Angels. Great characters. What's great about it, though, is there are people listening right now that I'm sure saw Steve Bilko play. It's not that long ago. A lot of little kids growing up in the area would have gone to Wrigley Field. And I hear from them all the time, and even Gilmore, you know. And that's what I think makes it special. There are still people that remember firsthand accounts of those games and what it was like to go there and, you know, how exciting it was to go watch those Angels play, you know, way back when. Chris, every time we have you on i get overwhelmed with text messages and people hit me up on twitter saying we got to know more we want to know more (laughs) stories we want to learn more we're going to have you on more this off season as well and we had you of course during the season quite a bit for uh, angels recap and that was so much fun and hopefully we can do this again where can people see you where on twitter at chris epting right and you have uh, any book signings coming up people should know about you know i'm getting ready for next spring to go out with the new edition of of roadside baseball but uh, yeah twitter is a good place facebook's a good place chris epting.com I'm always kind of posting stuff and baseball photos and things. And uh, I, I appreciate you having me on, man. It's always fun to kind of spur the interest and let people know that the, you know, the Angels really, you know, the, the A's came from Philly, Giants from New York, Dodgers from, from Brooklyn. The Angels are a homegrown Southern California team, really the only one when you look at it, you know, and the oldest one. And, they, and I think that's to be respected and, and researched and really kind of dove into because there are wonderful stories that uh, – that exist. I love reading your book, Baseball in Orange County. I love checking out Roadside Baseball. I do UC Irvine basketball games. I'm on the road. What I do is I get Roadside <laughs> Baseball, trying to figure out where I'm going next. Okay, are there any spots in this book that <laughs> i got to make sure I hit when I'm on the road? So I'm going to be uh, heading over to Houston here pretty soon, and I'm going to try to stop by Alvin, Texas, the hometown of Nolan Ryan. Got to make sure I check that out, and there's a lot of other things to do. Go to the Buff Furniture Store, and you can see where home Played sits where the Colt 45s used to play as well. Okay. It's a great spot. Okay, that's what we'll do. One of these days, we got to plan a trip. And we got I think we should plan a, a baseball road trip with Chris Epting. I, I think that, that would be something really fun. I think you guys would enjoy that. What are some spots that you know about? Uh, let us know. You can find Chris at Chris Epting. I'm also Trent Rush Sports uh, on Twitter. Hey, thanks, Chris, for coming in and doing this. It's always a treat having you here. And enjoy the conversation. Enjoy the stories. And I love learning more about the greatest game in the world. Right back at you, my friend. And again, and thanks to your crew for preparing these amazing stats on Mike Trout and Ty Cobb. Way to go, Perchie. All right, thanks, Chris. Chris the best. I don't know any other way to put it. I mean, that guy is brilliant, and he's got so much stuff. And I just think about Mike Trout for a second, though, and putting those numbers next to Ty Cobb and seeing that comparison. Got to give major credit uh, to Matt Birch, a member of Tim Mead's staff here in the Halos PR department, for coming up with that. Uh, it was so good to have that information. And, uh, you know, just really interesting when you look at the comparisons. We are seeing a living legend one of the all-time great players uh, playing center field for the Halos. It's uh, just fun to watch. It's fun to enjoy. It's fun to soak in every single time uh, you come out to Angel Stadium. Uh, we got to shift gears to another guy that may be the most intriguing player in all of baseball. It's kind of crazy. The Angels this year featured the best player in the game and a guy that 
might end up being pretty soon the best player in the game. I mean, he showed that kind of potential in Shohei Otani, 2018 American League Rookie of the Year. Well, we went out to Kelsey's in Pachanga. By the way, thanks to Pachanga for having us, and also to all of you that came out to see us there. Uh, it was so cool hanging out. But in case you missed it, we had a great chat with Jay Paris. Here's our conversation. Joining us now is a guest that I have been looking forward to talking to for a really long time. I'm glad he is here. Jay Paris covers the Rams for Forbes. He has put out many great books, including Game of My Life about the Rams. He's got another one coming out, or is out, Game of My Life about the Chargers. But what we're here to talk about is Shohei Otani, the amazing story of baseball's two-way Japanese superstar. Jay Paris is here with us All tonight. Right, Jay, hey, hey, thanks for coming out here, man. Konnichiwa. Let's yes. get the party going here, and uh, where else would you rather be than Kelsey's? This is great. No, this is really cool, and, and I'm, again, really glad you're here because the fact that you got this book out as fast as you did, I mean, the season just ended, it feels like, <laughs> and we already have an account uh, from somebody that was there with Shohei Otani every step of the way this entire season to already be able to have access to this, to read the story about Shohei Otani. Um, I want to know first about you, though, and what inspired you to want to follow Shohei Otani this season and be able to push this book out and have this uh, for the public. Yeah, you know, I'm a, a lucky guy. I grew up an Angels fan. You know, I was, yeah. I was a kid riding the bike through the orange groves uh, <laughs> without a helmet and without a cell phone and getting there early for batting practice and seeing Gene Autry come out after the games and waiting for the autographs and, and seeing Nolan Ryan get 383 to set the record and Reggie hit 500 and to be there in 79 when they that first playoff team that yeah. that was some some neat stuff and then when Shohei came along it you know you heard about this guy he's almost like a mythical mystic figure in northern Japan throwing the ball 99 miles per hour as a high school guy and he progresses through the Japan League and and you wondered like everybody else could he pull it off and and for the Angels to land him uh speaks so highly of the organization because when People were recruiting Shohei Otani. They didn't walk in and Shohei didn't say, here I am, how much are you going to give me? It's, how can you make me better? What is your plan to make me the best player I can be? And it kind of tells you a lot about him. And he's just fun to watch. He brings a joy to the game that I think others uh, would appreciate. I mean, I get goosebumps thinking about what Shohei Otani did. I'll just tell you this. I remember, I'll never forget where I was when I heard that Shohei Otani was going to be joining the Angels. I was in McAllen, Texas, which is four miles north of the Mexican border on the very most southern tip of Texas. And I am getting the news that Shohei Otani is jumping up and down. I was trying to look wherever I could to try to find a sake bomb to celebrate, <laughs> but nobody had any of those in McAllen, Texas. Good because, luck with that. Right, because we were just so excited that Shohei Otani was going to be joining this team. And um, Do you remember where you were when you got the news and well, what your feelings yeah, were at I, that time? I was, because uh, it was close. I mean, those seven finalists, you know, the Padres and the West Coast teams yeah. and the Texas Rangers, I mean, uh, it was going to be a close call, and, and uh, I saw the news on the TV, and I just, this could change the entire franchise. I mean, this is an international player. But that being said, when he was introduced that day in front of the big, big A caps there, some people maybe weren't aware of just the impact this guy could have. I mean, you hear the numbers, and, and you hear what he had accomplished, but a lot of people were still trying to figure out how to say his name, yeah. let alone root for him. But what I loved about that press conference was when they asked him why he chose the number that he chose, you know, number 17, uh, usually he wears number 11 because his idol is Hugh Darvish. 
I don't know if he knew about Jim Fregosi being a six-time <laughs> All-Star and it was already retired, but he said, and with a great uh, a pause like any good comedian, he said he really wanted number 27, <laughs> which was Mike Trout's, of course. Right. So right off the bat, you know, he was a great teammate, and, and that's how you judge a guy. Are you a good teammate or not? And the Angel teammates love him. You know, for one, I think the Angel Clubhouse, and Jay, you're around. You're, right. you're there around the ballpark. For one, I think it's a good clubhouse. I think there's good guys in there. And when you bring in somebody like that, that like you described him as almost like a mythical figure when right. he came over, no one knew what to expect. For him to be able to fit in and assimilate not just in the United States and in the American culture, but to assimilate into the baseball culture and deeper than that, the angel culture, it seems like he did that seamlessly. And that was, of all things, I think that's what surprised me the most about this season. You know, and I think a couple of reasons, if you looked at it, if you peeled it back a little bit, I think when he arrived... He didn't arrive as an established older player from, from Japan. There was no entourage. It was yeah. him and his interpreter, number one. Number two, he left millions and millions of dollars on the table by coming to play Major League Baseball when he did. If he would have waited a few more years, I mean, look at Tanaka, got a $111 million deal for seven years. So I think the players are looking at this cat going, man, he really wants to play baseball yeah. if he's leaving all that money on the table. And, and one other thing, he was always more concerned about would it be a distraction not to him but to his teammates he didn't want to burden them with the japanese media and all that brought with it and uh you could see it it's sincere you can't fake stuff like that we're talking with jay paris right now the author of shoei otani the amazing story of baseball's two-way japanese superstar jay when you wrote this book and you're following him along all season i would imagine you're basically writing as you go right all year long um what was the process like in trying to get access to Shohei Otani? I know that was tough. And trying to just learn as much as you could about this guy that really you couldn't have possibly met before that day in December when he was introduced. Right. You know, you had to talk to a lot of other people. Uh, you know, Shohei, he was, a, he was a tough guy to get hold of, 101, yeah. that's for sure. So you talked to other managers, other general managers, other players, uh, players that played with him in Japan to kind of get a feel for him. Uh, what was the, when, when you did get around him, uh, he understood what you were trying to do, and he, he was always a pro about it. And I think he was just so courteous and uh, gracious yeah. whenever you did get time that you appreciated it. But it's going to be interesting to see year two. Uh, I think he's just scratching the surface. I mean, this guy is going to be something out. And I think other people will learn more about him as, as, his, as his career matures. I'm sure you remember this very clearly. In spring training, nobody thought he could hit. Right. I, I mean, he, I'll, I'll tell you, he looked bad in spring training. Right. And, and they, the Angels fixed some things with his swing. They kept that front foot down. And all of a sudden, Shohei Otani is hitting home runs his first week as a Major League Baseball Ooh. player. Um, do you Did you get a sense at the time that there was a level of concern about hey, is Shohei going to be the star that everyone thought he would be? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the, the human nature of baseball. And I think a lot of times when a veteran player is over there working on stuff, you go, oh, he's working on stuff because he's got a track record in the major right. leagues. Nobody knew anything about Shohei. And he wasn't putting that 27 ERA up against the big boys. I mean, a lot of that was on the backfields against minor league guys. But he was tinkering with stuff. Man, he's learning a new language, learning new hitters, learning how to attack them. I think the big deal was him getting rid of that leg kick to generate his swing. He wasn't able to get in on the inside fastballs getting by him. Instead, it turned into the toe tap. And when the lights went on, you know, first at, first pitch he saw, first at bat, base hit, the three homers and the three straight angel games, and uh, he was electric. What did you learn about 
Shohei the player in Japan and talking to people that followed him then before he came to base before he came to Major League Baseball I mean we, we know what Shohei did in 2018 but what can you say about what he was in Japan and what he meant over there the focus uh, w- without a doubt his physical skills are off the chart you know you can see that he just oozes with talent in every direction uh, it, it's with he had that talent he had the accolades you know five season three-time all-star he was making 100 million yen a year which you know almost nine hundred thousand dollars and he's living in the dorms with the other rookies you know this guy he was doing endorsements he could have had a penthouse he could have had a nice house anywhere but he would go in to this dorm with the other rookies making the minimum salary and he'd study his hitting or how could he get his pitching better or he'd read about how to improve and just and when talking to other general managers billy epler certainly included it was that mental component that he had that he had back in Japan. Like, he really did want to be the best player that, that ever lived, and he's going to try to do it. And why not? I mean, the, what we saw that rookie season, I think there's reason to believe he might have that potential to be just that. It's hard to fathom when you have a right. guy like Mike Trout in that same clubhouse. But what Shohei showed that first year was incredible. Jay, I want to know, what were some things that you learned in this book, maybe not just about – Shohei, but uh, about the Angels organization and, and Shohei's place in that. Uh, what were some of the interesting takeaways that you had in, in your research in, in putting this together? You know, it was really interesting learning about the Japanese culture and, and how they uh, they reverend or they love baseball so much. And, and Shohei always going out of his way to make sure somebody else didn't have to do something extra. Like if he would eat sunflower seeds on the bench, he would spit them into a cup because that meant the clubhouse attendant wouldn't have to come by later and sweep him up. If he got a walk at the plate, he would wait and remove his protective gear, fold it up neatly, and then hand it to the backboard. You know, there was just this joy about him. And, and, you know, his last start in Houston that night, you know, all the, not pressure, but there was a lot of build-up expectations. Sunday night baseball, world champion Astros, Otani's big return pitching. He walks out of the bullpen gate, and he veers about 20 feet away, because there was a gum wrapper over on the field. He went over and picked it up and put it in his back pocket. So it, it was just that, uh, that respect they give the game, the respect they give the other players. And you never saw him mad. You never saw him frustrated. You never th- saw him throw a bat. You know, there, there was that childlike joy that you couldn't, couldn't help but root for him. The process of putting this book together, Shohei Otani, the amazing story of baseball's two-way Japanese superstar, Jay, for you, I mean, talking to everybody you talked to, from Billy Epler, I know Mark Langston wrote the foreword right. for this book. It was great. Uh, what were some things that you, you learned from those guys in, in getting a chance to be around, you know, baseball savants basically all season long trying to get to know Shohei? But I'm sure there was probably a lot that you, you learned about this game as well. Yeah, just this, uh, the people, can this guy pull this off? I mean, to hit in Major League Baseball is so difficult. And then to pitch in Major League Baseball, to do it both. And and I, I think the old school guys were skeptical. And, you know, we go back to spring training, sitting in uh, Tempe Diablo Stadium there. I was behind a couple of guys. And this guy's not going to make it. And the other guy goes, give him a chance. So I think it's neat what he's done. And maybe you touched on it a little earlier. He might be evolving the game. In a way, a two-way player. Once it's been done, now it's been done. Uh, Tampa Bay Rays uh, picked a two-way player, Brendan McKay, last year at University of Louisville. And, and now scouts are going out and talking to players, saying that's a possibility. And they said they didn't say that before Shohei. And I think he's opened up a whole new way to, to look at a game. And I think it's a great intersection with a whole new generation of, of player personnel guys, general managers, 
they're trying to find a new way to, to figure this dang game out, too, and it's a great marriage. Well, there are a lot of people trying to be really innovative right. and learn more about this game. Closer to home, another guy, Michael Lorenzen, played right. at Cal State Fullerton. He's with the Reds now. I mean, and he's doing a great job pitching for them. But I remember seeing Lorenzen as first that he was a leadoff hitter. We saw him at times hitting the three spot, played out in center field, and in the ninth inning would run in from center field in college games and go close. Yeah. I, I think that there's a chance we can see that at the major league level. I, I think, think so. that door's open. And I think, uh, you know, maybe with Shohei, maybe, you know, not hitting before and after the day's pitches, maybe that's adjusted. I, I think that there was no template last year. I mean, this is crazy. They were blazing a trail going somewhere where really no one's been in, in 100 years anyway. And I don't think Babe Ruth and those guys were, were into the data much, and they saved much in those old computers. So, I mean, <laughs> what the Angels did with Shohei and what Shohei did with the Angels, I mean, that, that was, the whole season was innovative. There wasn't a lot to fall back on. And, uh, yes, his elbow got hurt, but he's going to be back, and he's going to be back even better. He'll still just be 25 years old. Big ceiling on the big Shohei. We're talking with baseball. Baseball writer Jay Paris right now. Uh, Jay, you mentioned before the 1979 season. Right. And we're coming up now on the 40-year anniversary of that first postseason run yeah. for the Angels. Um, we probably should do a whole other show just on that 79 team. But what do you remember about the 79 Angels? Uh, Rod Carew, you know, get, doing it and, and – and, more the fans. I mean, the slogan was, yes, we can. Yeah. You know, yes, we can. Yes, we can. And I saw the big A, you know, go up and down a few times at the Beach Boy concert. But never at Angel <laughs> Games. In 1979, it was going up and down. It, and just the joy. And it was a different era. I mean, people stormed the field like it was a college basketball game or something. And, and then we uh, all went over to the catch across the street and had a social sparkler. Jay, it's so good having you here to talk about this book. Shohei Otani, the amazing story of baseball's two-way Japanese superstar. Where can we find it? How can I get my hands we're, on a copy uh, of this? <laughs> we're we're uh, on Amazon.com uh, right now. We're, we're trying to set up some uh, book signings in Orange County. We have one at Warwick's in La Jolla on December 6th. Okay. And uh, love to get in the team store and maybe sell a few and donate some money to the Angels Kids Foundation because I was an Angel kid myself one time. That's awesome. Unbelievable to hear that. Jay Paris. Can we give a round of applause to Jay Paris joining us here at Kelsey Sports Bar and Grill? Great stuff. Uh, we got, we're holding the book one more time. we got to make sure we pose for a photo here. That's <laughs> here the important go. thing. Jay, thanks so much for joining us here at Kelsey's. All right. Jay is the man. And, again, thanks so much to our friends at Pachanga for having us out there, hanging out at Kelsey's. was such a blast. Thanks to so many of you that made it out to Temecula. I know it was a long drive for many of you coming from Orange County or in the Los Angeles area. But the people that went out to go see us in Temecula uh, was great to spend that time together. Had some great food and got great company as well. Spent time uh, with Jay Paris and got to learn more about Shohei Otani. And, of course, congratulations to Shohei for being named the 2018 American league rookie of the year there is so much more to talk about with angels baseball there are a lot of changes going on with this angels coaching staff we're starting to get some answers there as that's starting uh, to come into play just a little bit the winter meetings are right around the corner we're going to be at the winter meetings we're going to have really good insight for you guys there uh awesome stuff we're going to chat with billy epler in the very near future also 
We're going to Texas. Yes, we're going to see Justin Anderson, and that's going to be on next week's show, which we'll also have here as a podcast as well. Angels.com slash podcast, iTunes, Google Play, however you found us. That's awesome. Tell your friends. Be sure to subscribe and uh, give us a rate, review, whatever you want to do. Helps us out a lot. Again, my name is Trent Rush. Thanks to all of you for joining us here on the Halo Hot Stove Podcast. Have a great rest of your day, and we'll see you around Angel Stadium. Take care. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.